Let's take our Bibles and go to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll be there in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And here's what we're going to talk about this morning. What happens in the end? What about the rapture? What will the great tribulation be like? Another question that was submitted. Would Isis be the second beast sent to honor the first beast in the book of Revelation in the great tribulation? What about the millennium years, the thousand year period of time in which Christ will reign? Will children continue to be born after the second coming? And then as Jews don't believe that Christ has come now, will they actually repent in the time that Jesus does return? Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Read with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The backstory of this is that the Apostle John, who wrote or recorded the book of Revelation, was probably in his 90s. He was on an Alcatraz type of fortress called the Isle of Patmos. It was this ugly piece of volcanic rock, and he's in his 90s, all alone, separated from Christians, separated from family, in a cruel Roman prison, and God chooses to give the Apostle John, in the last few minutes of the fourth quarter of his life, the most compelling, the most descriptive, the most terrifying picture of what will come. Now, there's already several applications that we can draw from that. Number one, the fact that you are up in years does not mean that God is done with you. He's in his 90s. And some of us, if you've actually read the book of Revelation, and by the way, if you've never have, it would be really cool to start after today. But if you do it, imagine the shock of seeing these things in a vision that would send most 40-year-olds into cardiac arrest. But John's in his 90s, blown away that God preserves him. And I think this is really cool. You know what the word revelation is in the, in the Greek language? That was the language that the New Testament was given in. It's the word that we get our word apocalypse from. So literally, we could say that we just read from the apocalypse. It's the unveiling of what previously was hidden. And you say, Jeff... How am I to understand prophecy in the end times? Well, let me give you a little bit of history that might help us as Americans make more sense of this extremely detailed, and if you're not saved, should be an absolute and completely terrifying subject. In 1878, there was the Niagara Bible Conference 
that drew together many people in America who still believed that the Bible was the word of God. What happened in the mid-1800s is that German liberalism was in its heyday. Um, that is still carried over into many seminaries today that would consider themselves theologically liberal. Uh, these would be presuppositions such as the Old Testament um, does not necessarily speak of prophecy. For example, they would say that Daniel wrote after, or the book of Daniel rather, was written after the events happened because it couldn't have been that someone foretold those events. This is the day in which German liberalism was such that the Old Testament specifically was not divinely inspired by God, but it was written over different periods of time. And when the Hebrews went into the promised land, they basically took pagan Canaanite ideas and they simply put the Hebrew God's sticker on it. German liberalism at this time, some claimed that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And there were even certain German scholars, Bruno Bauer being one, who claimed that Jesus never even lived. This is right after 1859, Charles Darwin on the origin of species. But often in our, especially government textbooks, will never let you know the subtitle to Darwin's book. It goes, on the origin of species or Google it or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life, or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. If you read Darwin carefully, you will very quickly discover that Darwin's work on biology was not so much in the test tube, but it was something that he applied to the struggle of nations in that the European peoples will probably conquer the others and ultimately uh, will show themselves to be the superior race. It's no surprise that Nietzsche and it's no surprise that Hitler relied heavily on the work of Darwin. That's all in the news. And you're in the 1870s and you go to a church and your pastor's confronted with this if he still believed the Bible. And somebody said, let's gather together people who still believe the word. And they had the Niagara Bible Conference. And one of the things that came out of that conference, and by the way, you don't have to believe this to be a Bible-believing Christian, but was a popularized understanding of the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Now, I had a friend comment on Facebook about the questions that we would be addressing today, and he said, it looks like they're dispensational. And by the way, we're going to be going through terms today. I'm going to explain them as best I can. But let me give you an idea on what dispensationalism is. Dispensationalism is an approach to Bible, biblical interpretation during which God uses different means of working with people, Israel and the church, during different periods of history, usually seven chronologically successive periods. In other words, uh, most of what is presented as Christian eschatology today is presented in a dispensational uh, way. Uh, I'm going to try to, as best I know my heart this morning, um, give you what the options are in God's word because the Bible does say that those who teach the Bible will be judged more strictly. And if I can be even more honest, um, there is nothing more frustrating for me to study than eschatology. Now, there are certain people and they have it all figured out. 
They know exactly when it's all going to happen. They say dispensationalism or this other view is true. And as for those, for those of you, we, we thank you for being born. And you may want to just go ahead and write yourself a Bible. All right? But as for this preacher, I'm going to give you the different views on how people who believe the Bible have interpreted the Bible as far as end times go. And for about the last 45 years in the U.S., this is uh, way past the Niagara Bible Conference, there's been an unprecedented rise in the interest in eschatology. For those of you that were in the 70s rocking your Fu Manchu, you probably remembered Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Then for those of you that were around in the 90s, you remember the Left Behind series. And for those of you who have seen and regretted seeing the Left Behind movies, we'll just let sleeping dogs lie. Aren't you glad that the preservation of the gospel is not dependent upon Christian movies? Uh, usually Christian movies, when I watch them, cause me to sin because I get so frustrated. Moving on. And then in the 90s, there was the Y2K. There was Y2K. You know, what's going to happen when the year 2000 rolls around and our toasters won't work and, and, and the, the, the water won't flow and so forth and so on. And for some of us back then, we still have thousands of rounds of ammunition and a lot of beans and rice, all right? So, that, so there was that. And what made things even more interesting was George Bush Sr. when he made those comments that had nothing to do with what people interpreted them to mean. He was speaking of the fall of communism and he said the three words, a new world order. In the context, whether you're Democrat or Republican, what Bush was talking about is there's the fall of collapse of communism. Therefore, it's going to be a new political system. But prophecy junkies took that. They snorted it. They mainlined it. I mean, it was crazy how Bush was ushering in the end times. And for those of you that are deep thinkers and you watch The Simpsons, you know, there's the part to where uh, Homer has the sign saying that the, their, the end is near. We've also seen pictures on the internet, maybe people in downtown larger cities, and they have the sandwich board saying the end is near. So for a lot of us, we've got <clears throat> an absurd type of humor on the other hand, and we've got an absolute fanaticism that can look for, like one prophecy teacher said, Look for prophecy fulfilled in this sense. If a person sneezes in the Middle East, there are some American Christians who will say that's fulfilled prophecy because we're waiting for things that may not actually be there. So here's, here's to go back to last week, here's the wide cast net, the, the large idea we want to get through this morning is that according to Revelation chapter 1, Verses 1 through 3, taking prophecy seriously brings great blessing. Taking prophecy seriously brings great blessing. So what happens in the end? Well, let's understand what these words actually mean, first of all. What is eschatology? Eschatology is from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or final things. In other words, eschatology is the study of the last things. Well, what is the rapture? The rapture would be the taking up, and by the way, this is all in your notes. It is the taking up of believers into heaven, and this is where it begins to be even more confusing. Depending on 
the way the Bible is interpreted, the rapture would be at the beginning of the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Some Christians say the rapture will happen in the middle of the Great Tribulation. And some say that the rapture will happen simultaneously with the return of Jesus at the end of the seven years. So there's these various understandings of the end times. Let let me give you one of these positions. One would be a position called amillennialism. Many dentists hold to this view because they always want people to say, ah. An amillennialist would say, that the thousand years referred to in the book of Revelation is not a literal period of 1,000 years. They would argue that the millennium is not mentioned in the Bible outside of Revelation chapter 20, and they would say that the return of Christ is imminent. He could return right now. There would be no actual great tribulation period of time, and Christ's return would usher in eternity, heaven, and hell. There's another position that was actually held by Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon called post-millennial. And this this largely died when World War I happened. And here's the the understanding with post-millennialism. They believe that there was an expectation of continually improving world conditions and the gospel would be there the gospel would continue to grow and grow and grow so that the planet earth would become more christianized which would actually usher in the reign of jesus christ it goes back to jesus's parable of the mustard seed that would grow and grow and grow and grow but when world war one happened and the most civilized place on the planet western europe bled themselves white, their entire generation of young men either killed, maimed, or scarred from trench warfare, people retreated from that view and said, it doesn't look like the world's actually getting better. There's another position called premillennialism, which means that Jesus will return before the millennial period of time, before that literal thousand years. There are some premillennialists who are also pre-tribulationists. You still with me? All right, so they say Jesus is going, the rapture is going to happen rather at the beginning of the seven years of the great tribulation. After the seven years, the thousand years of the millennium. And here's the pre-tribulational rapture position. It says that the rapture is a different event occurring at a different time than the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they would say that there's no direct mention of the church in the book of Revelation past chapter 3 and verse 10. So they would argue for the pre-tribulational position that God has not, will not allow his church to endure the great tribulation. There are some who would say that Jesus will return in the middle of the tribulation time. Those will be mid-tribulational rapture proponents. We still good? And then there's also premillennialists. So they say Jesus is going to return before the millennium, but he's going to return at the very end 
of the tribulation time, and Jesus' return will be synonymous with the rapture. In other words, Jesus returns, it's the battle of Armageddon, and before God completely lays out judgment on the earth, he will rapture out his people so they will meet him in the air. This post-tribulational, right, at at the end of the seven years position would say that believers do not suffer the wrath of God during the great tribulation, but they will suffer unparalleled persecution during this time. They will argue that that tribulation and persecution has been normal for God's people ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. They also argue that Israel was still in Egypt when God gave the ten plagues on the Egyptians, just that God's people were not harmed. There is something interesting, regardless of the view that we may hold on this, that Revelation chapter 20 and verses 4 through 6 does say that there will be masses upon masses of Christians who will be killed during the Great Tribulation. And I read Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, for those who say that Jesus, or rather the rapture will happen at the beginning of the tribulation, the book of Revelation in many examples is clear that there will be many Christians who will die by the hand of the Antichrist. Those who believe that the rapture will happen at the middle or at the end of the seven years of tribulation say, well, that's because the church will still be here. But what will the tribulation time actually be like if we're interpreting Scripture correctly and it is a seven-year period of time? And that's, that's my position. And again, there are people who believe in post-tribulation or a post-millennialism. There are those who believe in amillennialism, that it's not an actual um, physical period of time. That doesn't mean they're denying the Bible. It's not an issue of inspiration. It's an issue of interpretation. Got it? But what would the great tribulation be like? Well, according to Revelation chapter 13 and verses 16 through 17, here is where it begins to get terrifying. There will be what we could call a one world government. It will be a government, whatever the mark of the beast actually is. If you've watched some of the Christian movies from back in the 70s, it's an actual rubber stamp 666 on someone's head or their their right a hand. It's probably not going to be that. Some people today say it could be a chip to where you can't participate in the global economy unless you have the chip. I remember when the UPC codes on the bottom, right? Remember that? Oh my goodness. It says it's a universal. Therefore, Antichrist. Therefore, let's not be crazy. All right? But whatever this is, the Antichrist will have control of the entire world and a person cannot participate in that economy unless they have essentially sold their soul to the devil. 
The Antichrist, according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, this is, these are things that we don't have time to get into in detail, but if you're interested in this subject, I would point you to our website. You can look at all of our message and messages, and we have messages tagged under the title of Eschatology and Prophecy, and we've dealt with some of these things in more detail there. But if you are interested in doing some more reading, uh, we do have two books here. One would be, uh, this is edited by Daryl Bach and Stanley Gundry. Uh, it's Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. Excellent book for understanding what Christians have believed about this. And there's also a book edited by Gundry as well called Three Views on the Rapture. Fascinating stuff. These will be here if you'd like to come check them out and, and read up on it. But there's something else that will characterize the Great Tribulation. Not only will the Antichrist be in control, not only will the world system be revolving around him, but according to Revelation chapter 6, there will be an incredible, unprecedented amount of bloodshed. Beginning in verse 3, and this is prophetic language, this is what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation, then he opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, and this is a symbol here, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Take a guess on what people interpreted this rider on a bright red horse to be before the Soviet Union collapsed. That's the Red Army, bro. Like, that's the Russians. Now, could God use that as a part in the end times? Absolutely. So in other words, peace will be taken away from the earth. And notice in verse number seven, this is, by the way, the, the Clint Eastwood movie, Pale Rider. This is what it's going for here. And he Opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And in verse 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was capital D, Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. Six, seven billion people, you do the math on a fourth of that. And that is an absolute Armageddon before Armageddon actually happens. Imagine the scale if you have 1.5 to 1.2 billion people in the period of just a few years who are killed. The scripture is clear as well as far as I understand the Bible to teach that Christians will be slaughtered during the great tribulation on an unprecedented scale. Now if you believe that Christians will be raptured before the great tribulation, these would be people who are saved after that point. If you believe that the church will be here throughout the great tribulation, um, and that's the way that I lean, the way I understand the church um, to be and the way scripture is taught, then these would be if this happens during our lifetime, it could very well be many of us. 
Mark chapter 13, verses 19 through 20 says, For in those days there will be much tribulation, as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God has created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Verse 5 in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation says that there will be unprecedented famine during the time of the great tribulation. And all of this, if you read chapter 6 through chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, all of this will culminate in what we understand to be the battle of Armageddon, which most Bible scholars believe that will take place at a place in Israel called Megiddo. And it's said that when Napoleon was in the Middle East, he looked out upon that plain of Megiddo and said that every army in the world had room to maneuver there. In other words, the battle or the plain of Megiddo was the perfect trophy case for allowing armies to fully maneuver. And even more so now with asynchronous warfare um, with planes and so forth. So another question that was submitted, would, would ISIS be the second beast sent to honor the first beast? No. If you read Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, Revelation 13, 11 through 18, you will see very quickly that the second beast is called the false prophet. It's very interesting. In the end times, you will have an unholy trinity, Satan posing as God the Father, the Antichrist being the false messiah, and then you have the beast who is there, the second beast, to serve as a false prophet, as a false um, leader. And let me just say that, that um, ISIS would not be as big a deal as we made it if the free world would allow their soldiers to go and do what they do best. And the reason why we're concerned about it and the reason why we see it on the news so often is because there's a power vacuum of epic proportions in the Middle East. Many people throughout the years have said, well, this is the Antichrist. Many of the first Christians said, well, it's got to be Nero. He's burning Christians. Well, what about Domitian and Diocletian, these Roman leaders through the second, third, and fourth centuries, the ones who are trying to destroy all of the scriptures? And through the medieval times, some people said, well, what about the Pope? Pope Innocent III declared that all Bible translation societies to be completely illegal. And in many cases, those who are printing the Bible or printing Christian leaflets and, and booklets, they were burned alive on top of their printing presses. World War II, for some of you who may have been alive there, you probably heard people say, well, could Adolf Hitler be the Antichrist with his desire to completely annihilate the Jewish people? What about Mikhail Gorbachev? Some people said, well, his birthmark on his forehead is the mark of the beast. Or what about Ronald Reagan? I remember hearing that as a kid. That's dating myself, students. Like every, his first, middle, and last name all have six letters, so 666. So therefore, Ronald Reagan, the Antichrist. Let me just say a word. Let's be very careful that we don't try to find something that's not there. And when it comes to prophecy, let's be very careful that we don't assume to know more than we really do. And we'll bring this into a point here in just a moment. 
But what will happen in the great tribulation is that the Antichrist will pose as the Messiah and all of the world will worship him. Well, what about the millennium years? If the millennium is a literal thousand-year period of time, it will be an unprecedented, to use that word again, time of human growth and flourishing, and this will happen after Jesus returns at the end of the Great Tribulation. So at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back, Battle of Armageddon. If you're not with him, you're against him, and if you're against him, you're killed. He institutes a brand-new, beautiful, almost Garden of Eden-like reign. And it will be absolutely contrasted with the great tribulation. Some say, well, will children still continue to be born after the second coming and during the millennium? It would seem to be that would be the case. Because the Bible does say that Christ will stop the seven-year period of tribulation before everyone uh, is completely killed. And so there would be believers who would enter into the thousand years who had lived as we do. And then the final question, as Jews don't believe that Christ has come, will Jews repent in the time that Jesus does return? In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, Scripture does seem to indicate that Jews will be saved during the Great Tribulation. Also in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 8, and chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, that from what I understand the scripture to teach, that there will be a revival among the Jews in the end times. To where they will, and we don't know exactly how, but it will be such a way to where they will realize that they missed the boat, that the Messiah has come, and they will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's, let, let's bring it down to the ground here for a moment. And I just want to say, whatever system of eschatology... If you're an amillennialist, if you're a postmillennialist, if you're a pre-tribulational rapture premillennialist, if you're a panmillennialist, which means I don't care, it's going to all pan out in the end. Like whatever you are, whatever you believe, and if you can join my party, whatever you're confused about, can I get an amen? All of that, we as Bible-believing Christians believe strongly that Jesus is returning as a conquering king. And that when Jesus returns, when that happens, he will come to unite his people here with him. And he will unite his people here with those who have gone before. And let me just say, let me just say a word here. The fact that some people say, well, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, bro. Like, I've had to replace my watch battery. Like, did God forget? Like, Jesus says, very soon. Listen, that is from a God who is able to, and I don't know how he does this, but a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day, and guess what? It very well could be that God is allowing the world to grow cold through skepticism, through theological liberalism, because there is a scripture that references that, that in the latter times and the end times, their love will grow cold, that people say, you know what? I mean, it's kind of like for some of us, we've been stood up, like I don't think they're coming. Like, we're supposed to meet at 6, 6.15, 6.30, 6.45, I hate them. <laughs> 7 o'clock, peace out, deleting your number from my phone. They're not coming. But if we can believe rationally in the facts of the resurrection, 
If we can go with me here, if we can see from logic, from history, from other sources outside the Bible that the minimal facts of the resurrection actually happened, and we say, well, where does that lead? If I don't come to the discussion with a prejudice against the possibility of the supernatural, I have to be open to the fact that something extraordinary happened and a dead man who was dead for days rose. And I don't know about you, this may just be a Jeff thing, but if I can believe that Jesus actually died and he actually stayed dead for days and then he was raised again by the power of the Father and he's alive today, I can can deal with a little bit of end times uncertainty. Like I can deal with not being able to completely understand all of how it fits together, but what I do know is that Jesus is returning. And two Godly men, we could call them, without a stretching of this word, prophecy experts, John Walvoord and Dan Mitchell say, quote, and this is in your notes, the greater degree of one's rejection of the gospel, the less likely they will receive the gospel after the rapture. The greater degree of one's rejection of the gospel, the less likely they will receive the gospel after the rapture. If you believe that doesn't happen until midway or at the end of the seven years, that quote's even more powerful. What it means is that when literally all hell breaks loose, there will be people. Now, I want you to try with me for just a moment to jump into the world of abject insanity. And there are people that fill churches all across North America, and this is what they say, because I was one of them. I don't want to give my life to Christ right now. But if the great tribulation starts, and I'm still there, I'll definitely give my heart to Jesus then, because I'm sure as heck not going to take the mark of the beast and worship Satan incarnate. You following me? Like, I'm not going to give my life to Christ here in a room packed with people who are at least friendly towards the gospel. And there may be seekers scattered throughout. But I'm not going to follow Christ now when it's easy. I'm going to wait until everything in hell and on earth is dragging me to the pit. And it's at that point I'm going to change my mind? I mean, what was I smoking? Are are we tracking or are we tracking? Again, to say I will wait when, when the restrainer will be removed, when life will not be normal, when social ethics and mores completely collapse, and it's the law of the jungle, when demonic spirits are active like no other period in the history of the world, it's then that we're gonna decide to follow Christ, which will almost certainly result in us being killed? That's insane. So the takeaway is this morning, where are you with Jesus? If you've been in church, but you've not been born again, Christ has not changed your heart, you know that you need to be saved What it means is that to push him away this morning is to push him away forever. 
Because we're not guaranteed a second chance. You with me? I think often we, 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 we think far too much of ourselves, and I praise God that he was patient with me the times that I grew up in church, especially as a teenager, and heard the gospel but said, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I mean, people think I'm an okay guy, especially go to a Baptist church and they all stand at the end and sing and people walk down. I don't want to be one of those people, people looking out like, what's his problem? Somebody's a sinner, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't want that. But it was all about me, you see. To reject Christ now is to reject Christ for all eternity. But to receive Christ now, that is the beginning of a brand new walk with the God of the universe. Will you, will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me right now? It very well may be the case that <clears throat> and you say, Jeff, I take care of my family. I pay my bills. I work hard. But just recently, God showed me that that's not enough. And that's not what salvation is about. That's, that's not how I get a, a life change. That's not how salvation works in this moment right now i encourage you regardless if that's your story if you're new here with us and you have questions we love questions but the greatest question that you must ask is where am i with god right now if jesus were to return or i were to die where where would i go if there's not the peace of Christ reigning in your heart, I encourage you in this moment to repent of your sin and place all your faith in Jesus Christ alone. The invitation for some of us who have been saved for a while may be that sometimes we just don't think about the return of Christ. We get too busy, too distracted by, by just stuff. And it very well could be that during this time of invitation, our response to Jesus could be, God, would you help me to live today with the knowledge that one day you will return. 